Well, good morning. Pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to worship with you. And uh, Dave, thanks for that uh, introduction. Well, I'd ask that you turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Hopefully, uh, by this time, you know where you can find Matthew uh, chapter uh, 5 through 7, as we've been exploring the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we've come a long way already in this series, and uh, uh, we've got a couple more uh, weeks to go uh, before we'll be finishing up. And it's quite amazing how much time uh, the church can take in studying God's Word. Uh, if you remember, uh, we're going to be in this series about 30 weeks, and uh, we're going to look at one of Jesus' sermons. You think he's got a lot to say in, in one of his sermons, that we would invest 30 weeks uh, in that one uh, particular sermon. And we've come a long way, if you think about it. Uh, at the beginning part of this series, uh, Dave has uh, faithfully taught uh, you uh, about the Beatitudes, the attitudes of being uh, kingdom followers of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus moves from those first 12 verses to start saying, okay, the kind of life that we're called to live isn't just in our heads and in our hearts, but it's in our lives as well. And if you remember, uh, we've been seeing throughout the end of chapter 5 all the way to the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus has been telling us that kingdom-focused lives are lives that look different than that of the world. It's going to change the way we talk. It's going to change the way we have relationships, even uh, the closest of relationships with regards to marriage. It's going to change the way uh, we vow and make oaths before the Lord. It's going to change our worship. And we can go through all the different ways that God has called us to be different as kingdom followers. And then, right when we think that we've got it all, at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus focuses in on our relationship with him. We call this part the kingdom affections our giving and serving to the Lord, our, our prayers as we've been studying these last couple weeks. And then next week we'll learn about the uh, subject of fasting and the place that that fasting has in the lives of believers. And then we're going to talk about in the weeks to come our aspirations where we'll focus in on the part of the text where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness that our focus and our drive and our desires should be that of following Christ and, and his kingdom but we focus in, in this last week in the Lord's Prayer, uh, for all of you, the beginning. Now, when I was watching the puppet ministry uh, doing uh, their skit, I leaned over to Dave and says, there's no reason for me to preach. They've done a great job of communicating, in essence, what, what pastors say, stealing the pastor's thunder. There's not much left to preach on that, but I pray that uh, I have a little more than what they've already given you. But there's some great things that we have already learned about the Lord's Prayer and uh, as we look at that first part of the Lord's Prayer, I want to stop and ask, after two weeks of hearing about how we ought to pray, the question I have for you, the people of God, is do you buy it? Do you buy that prayer is something that God has given his people to allow us to communicate with the Almighty? When you bow your head and you close your eyes and, and put your hands together and start uttering uh, normal words. Do you believe you are in the presence of Almighty God? Do you believe that the request that you put before him, that he cares for them, that when we are told by the Apostle Peter that we are to cast all our anxieties on him, that he does truly care for us? Do you buy that? Do you buy it that even though you're one in seven billion people living on this great place called earth, that God desires and hears when you and I pray? Do you believe that? Do you buy that by faith? You see, one of the reasons why the Lord's Prayer 
is something that we as evangelicals push away from at times is we see so many unbelievers praying this prayer without a thought in mind. And we must understand that this prayer is not a magic formula. This prayer isn't something that God said, if you just pray these words and everything will be just fine. But at the heart of this prayer is a heart that is focused in on God and his righteousness and his kingdom and his glory. And so the thing that we have to remember is while we have learned great truths in these first two weeks of the Lord's Prayer, we have to stop and ask the question, by faith do we believe that prayer truly does change things? Do we believe by faith that a a small prayer done in the quiet place where we pray, that it has the power to move mountains? Do we have the uh, belief and the faith that prayer can change a medical diagnosis, that prayer can uh, redeem a marriage, that prayer can bring back a wayward child, that prayer can do things that we don't think are possible? Do we believe, do we buy in a God who wants to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could ever ask for or imagine? You see, many of us don't buy into prayer as we should, and that's why I'm thankful that God in his sovereignty and his perfect plan, put these words into the mouth of his son when was asked of him, how should we pray? You see, the opening parts of the Lord's Prayer is a reminder for us that we serve an awesome God, a God who loves us, who cares for us, a God who is able to do far more than we could ever ask for or imagine, and as a result of that, we need to buy into this communication this mechanism, this vehicle that we have to talk to our Father in heaven. Well, a couple of things that I want to share with you, and I know you've probably heard this, but as a way of review, as we approach this prayer, once again, there's a couple truths that I want us to be reminded of again. First of all, in verse 9, we are told that we are to pray, and, and we need to pray like this. And I want to remind us that Uh, Again, this is not something that has to be prayed, uh, if you will, the same way each and every time, but it's a pattern. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I want you to pray exactly these words. What he wants us to do is have a pattern or a model for prayer. The next thing I want you to notice as we approach this text is that Jesus breaks down our prayer so that it's balanced. He starts with our Father in heaven, that our prayers, first of all, should be lifted up to God himself. Then we are to pray for our own needs. And so we pray to God, we worship and adore Him. Then we look to ourselves and we seek to uh, confess any sins. We seek to ask for help in our time of need. But then notice it's not just about us and God. In the third part of the prayer that Dave preached for us, we learn that it involves others. And so this model prayer is a balanced prayer that is to help us understand how we ought to pray and never to focus in on only one aspect of prayer over another. But I also want to go back and hold into tension that while this prayer is a model in Luke's gospel, when the disciples ask Jesus, how ought we pray? Jesus says, I want you to say these words. And so there are times and there are places that I think it is altogether right and profitable for us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, and to forgive us our debts as we forgive those 
who have debts or trespasses against us. It is good for us at times in one voice as a congregation of the risen Savior and Lord to pray that way, but to always remember that it can never become a mindless collection of words. It can't be that formula that we think just because we say the right thing that it will turn about. And so let's look to this text, and I want to look under the heading, Do You Buy It? Do You Believe It by Faith? That the prayer that God gives us is a powerful one and one that we can use in everyday life. To do so, I want to examine those first couple phrases of this text under three headings. And the only way that we're going to be able to buy into this prayer to buy into prayer altogether is to buy in by faith, to believe by faith in the God who's given us prayer. And so at the beginning of this prayer, Jesus tells us that if we are going to be people of faith who pray often, we need to first of all write this down, acknowledge the person of God. We need to first acknowledge the person of God. Notice in the text, our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name. Now I want to take a couple moments and, and address some of the things that I see about the person of God. Number one, I want you to notice that Jesus expects our prayers to be a real thing. What I mean by that is prayer is not some theoretical or esoteric activity. It is not some mindless meditation where we speak to our own consciences. And even if I could, I'm not sure how you do that. But speaking to yourself, this is not what is going on. What, what is being articulated here is Jesus is calling us, his people, to have a dialogue with a real person. There's something utterly simplistic to what Jesus is calling his people to. What Jesus is asking of us in prayer is to be in communication with another. Now that's something as easy as my own children would understand. Even my five-year-old understands what it means to communicate with another. And here Jesus gives us what I would like to say is a very human and earthy and real human experience. But right away when I say that, words like human and earthy, you bring an unbeliever into the midst and they'll say what you are doing when you pray is altogether unhuman. It's altogether Unearthly. There's nothing, nothing real or true about it. You're talking to somebody who you've never seen. You're talking to someone who readily doesn't speak right back to you in some audible voice. And yet, what we are going to learn is by faith, we know that our Father in heaven hears our voice and he speaks to us even in sometimes in that still small voice. And we have seen, and I hope that you have seen, God do mighty things through your prayers. Altogether, then, as a result of that, we can trust in this God whom we're called to pray to. Now, notice there's a couple things with this very uh, human experience. Notice there are no magic words in this. Each of these words are uh, words that, uh, for many of us, we're able to know exactly what they mean. And if not, we can look to our smartphone or our dictionary, depending on what generation you come from. Uh, to understand what each of these words mean, but they're not difficult words for us to understand. And yet notice, right away, when, when Jesus shares this prayer, he shows us, number one, that we are to live in community with others. 
Notice in the text the word hour. It's the first word of this great prayer. This word hour is not the word mine or yours or his or hers. It is plural. It is a reminder that you and I are not alone as followers of Jesus Christ. That when we go to our God, we are not an only child. Notice that there are no I's or me's found in this prayer. It is all about our as a community reminder that we are not just a singular individual bringing our concerns and our requests to God. That we are, upon, we are one of thousands upon thousands of people each and every day who are approaching God's throne with confidence, seeking the, Him in their hour of need. Do you recognize today that as Pastor Dave and others have prayed this morning, that they are one of millions upon millions of prayers that have been lifted up? And here's the amazing thing. God hears them all. He hears every one of them. Now, this word acknowledges that our God is therefore able to handle all of that. He's able to hear all of those requests and deal with them. And that's the wonderful thing about answered prayer. When I have prayed specifically for something, I know that I'm not the only one praying. And it's an amazing thought when God answers that prayer that I can say, wait a minute, this God who is overseeing the universe and all that is in it, he was able to stop what he was doing, hear a prayer from his son, and not only from me, but from millions of others who are praying at the very same time. And he's able to listen to my one request and to take care of all the details around it. That's an amazing God. That's a powerful God. That is an utterly sovereign God who loves to hear his people in community with one another. And so here's something that I've come to know in my study of this message is it teaches me that when we pray corporately, we are not spectators. When you hear one of your elders or an individual in a small group pray, your job isn't just to sit there and listen and, and, and just go on and, and wait until it's your turn. But our job is to corporately gather together and as one prays, the rest of the group is in agreement with that prayer. That we are not sitting back passively uh, acknowledging what someone may be saying, but we are in one accord like the book of Acts says, praying together in one place, recognizing that we're in community. And about notice, this community, is a, there's a reason for it. And notice in the text it says, our Father. Notice we're not just a part of community, but we're also a part of the same family. Notice in the text, he gives us this word, Father. It's the idea of family. I want us to know this morning that our gathering today isn't founded in our commonality of race. It isn't found in our commonality of background. It isn't because we enjoy the same sports teams or the same hobbies or we have the same set of politics or occupations. But the reason why you and I, different people from different places and different backgrounds, gather and praise and pray and preach to the name of Jesus Christ is because we have one Father, our Father, who is in heaven. And so that is the amazing thing. God has gathered from all tribes and all nations and all people into one family. Now, we must be reminded as we go back into the original text, when Jesus is preaching this, when he's telling the gathering around him what is happening, he articulates, I want you to pray to God as Father. 
Now, this would have been a mind-blowing experience. Scandalous words by this rabbi, Jesus. You see, the term father was not something that the followers of God, righteous Jews, would have done very much at all. In fact, if you look to the Old Testament, you will see that the name father is only used as a title for God 14 times. 14 times in 39 books is the name father used for God. Most of those 14 times speak of God being the father of the Israelite nation, kind of like how we would talk about our founding fathers, that they're not really my father, but they're our father. They're, they're the ones who started the country. And so even when we see those 14 references of the word father, they are used corporately and not individually. But notice as we move into the New Testament, 14 times this word is used in the Old Testament, but by the time the end of the Gospels, four of the first, the first four books of the New Testament, the word Father is used more than 60 times. One commentator said the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament can be summed up in one word, Father, because it sums up the difference of relationship that the people of God had in the Old Testament in comparison to the people of God in the New Testament. Now, when Jesus uses this word, uh, Father, it is the Aramaic word, the words or the language that Jesus spoke, a common uh, language in that day, Aramaic. It was the word Abba. Now, we've heard this word before, and for many of us, we, we understand what it, what it means. But notice, this word Abba for Father in the Bible is not a word of formality, but of familiarity. It is not a word that is stuffy. It is not a word that simply means someone who has begat me, someone who has born me. But this word Abba is a tender and loving word that is about as endearing as you can get. Uh, the closest I can get to the idea of Abba is what my five-year-old does when I come home every day. Now, I wish I could say my other two boys do this. I wish I could say Amanda does this. Well, only my five-year-old does this. When I come through the door, I hear little feet running to the laundry room, and I hear, Daddy's home. And those arms come out, and he wraps his arms around, Daddy, it's so good to see you. Can we wrestle? Can we do this? Can we do that? And you know that you have a son who absolutely loves you, and he doesn't come in and stick his right hand out and say, Father, it's good to see you. How was work? How was... No, he doesn't do that at all. And some of us think that when we approach God, our hand needs to come out, and we need to say, Father God, how are you? My name's Tim, and I know who you are, and here are my requests, and this is how stuffy I'm going to be. No. Luke's got it down. We are to run to our Father, our Abba in heaven, and we are to grab a hold of his leg and say, hey, God, it is so good to be your son. Can, can we spend time together? Can we interact with one another? Can, can I show you and, and tell you about my life and about my day? Can I tell you about my concerns and, and my struggles and my issues, my fears? Can I just relate to you? Now, I want you to know, where did, where did we learn that we were to call our father this? Well, those 60 times that Jesus uses this word fa Father or Abba, he uses it himself. So the reason why we know we can call our God in heaven Abba is because Jesus does. Now, I want you to notice of all the times that Jesus uses the word uh, or speaks to God, he speaks to him using this term Abba, except for one. 
As I studied this word Abba, the only time that Jesus does not refer to his to God in heaven as his father, as his Abba, is found in Luke 27:46. In Luke 27:46, looking to the heavens while on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to remind us of an important truth that I learned in studying this. Our sin ruins the father-child relationship that we have with God. Now, we could say, well, all that Jesus is doing is he's, he's referencing uh, Psalm 22. Well, I think there's more to that. Because at that moment, at the forsaking of the Son, was when Jesus took on your sin and mine. And I will tell you that if we want to see prayer be an effective and powerful uh, opportunity and mechanism in our relationship with Jesus Christ, then it must be done in a relationship that is not hindered by sin. Jesus could speak to the God of the universe by saying, Abba, Father, except when sin got in the way. And that's why you and I, before we approach that throne of grace, we need to make sure that we have uh, spoken to our God and confessed any known sins so that when we request, when we ask for things, it is not done with us shrieking back in fear of a father who's going to discipline us, but one whom we can speak to as our daddy. Now, as we look at this text, we need to understand when Jesus gives us this word to use, he wants us to understand a little bit about who God is. Notice, again, that this type of prayer in the Jewish setting would have been scandalous. And yet what we see is that it's a supreme blessing to the believer. Now, what does it teach us? Now, the word Abba, first of all, reminds us that you and I are loved. We're loved. You see, when we can call God our Father in heaven, then we are reminded that we are connected to our God in heaven, not simply just by a, a formality, but absolutely because of the love that he has for us. But notice, it isn't that we're just loved by God, but we are reminded also that we have this Father in heaven who has forgiven us. You see, for some of us, when I say that God is our Father, we think back to our earthly father. And we sit there and we say, well, my earthly father was a jerk. He was a bum. And there was nothing that I would ever want to relate to, to my God in heaven as my Father on earth. That, it just doesn't work. That metaphor falls apart altogether because the father I had here on earth was a terrible man. But I want you to understand that throughout the scriptures, we are reminded that we have a father who loves us and a father who forgives us. And one of Jesus' best stories he tells, one of the most memorable ones in Luke chapter 15 is about a loving Abba. And you know the story. The Abba has two sons. The youngest son comes to his Abba and he says, Abba, you're not dead yet, but I wish you were, because I want your money. Give me your inheritance. I want it, and I can't wait till you die. And so give it to me so I can go live my own life. Now, that's not love, and that's not uh, something you would want to, as a human being, forgive altogether. And yet the father does give the son what he wants. And we know the story. The son goes and has wild life and, and pursues all this wild living to the point that there's a famine in the land and he loses all that he has. And as a result of that, he finds himself in a pig pen, yearning after the food that was fed to the pigs. 
And then it dawns on them. Even the servants in my father's house, in my Abba's house, they have all that they need. They have food. They have clothes. They have better treatment than what I have here as a quote-unquote free man. So I will go back to my father. I'll go back to the Abba, and I will uh, throw myself at his mercy, and I will ask, can I just be a servant? Can I be one of your hired hands? I don't need to be your son. And we know what the story tells us, that while the son was still far off, the father who was waiting for his son and his return sees his son and runs to him, which was scandalous in and of itself, a Jewish father to run uh, towards anybody let alone his own son. And what does he do? He embraces him. He hugs him. He tells the servants to go kill the fattened calf, to go get a robe and a, and a ring to put on his finger. And he says, that which is lost has now been found. We have a God who loves us, and we have a God who does not de- uh, demand that we're perfect. He knows we're going to fail. He knows we're going to struggle. He knows we're going to sin. And when those times come, he forgives. And that is why you and I have the opportunity to cry out to our Abba in heaven. What a glorious relationship we've been given. Now, one other final thing, and just so you know, my first point's by far my longest. So don't lose me here, because this is important stuff. Here we see that when we talk about our Father in heaven, there's this issue of possession. What I mean by that is, as a father of three kids, I recognize that it is my responsibility to care for them, to nurture them, to discipline them, to love them, all the things that fathers and mothers are supposed to do. I get that, and I take that on as my responsibility. The other day, my son, I I borrowed some money from my son, $40, okay? Uh, Don't worry, we're doing just fine. He just didn't have any cash, and uh, Noah has cash. He doesn't have credit cards. And so I told my son, well, I'll pay you back. Well, I had not heard the man every day, where's my 40 bucks? Where's my 40 bucks? And I reminded him that he owed me $378,652 and that that was continuing to go on because he had had breakfast that morning. And he says, Dad, you're supposed to do that for your son. You're not to borrow money from him. You're supposed to feed him and all of that. And he's absolutely right. A good father provides without holding any account of what is going on. But likewise, as children, we as children have possession of our parents. And what I mean by that is is that because our parents have raised us and, and loved us and cared for us, when we turn 18, or for some of us 38, and leave the house, we do not lose that possession. Some years ago, just even just a couple years ago, and I'm in my late 30s now, I had gotten sick, and my mom is a human pharmacy. She's got everything that a a mother could have or a Walgreens pick your your place. And I remember being sick and saying, I know it's 2 in the morning, but I can go. If I'm going to go into anybody's house, I can go into mom and dad's house, and that's fine. And they heard me in the kitchen, okay? I tried not to wake them, but I'm not a light walker, and they heard me. And my mom came in and says, oh, you know, what can I do for you? Do you need some food? Do you need this? Do you need that? Why? But not because I'm not, it's not that I'm not an adult. It's that I can have possession of my parents in the sense that I can call on them at any time. I know, and I would want this of my own children, that they know in their hour of need they can call me. And so here we have this God in heaven who says, I take possession of you. And you can take possession of me. 
You can call on me at any hour of the day. You can call me uh, whether it's something out of the blue or something that's really been bothering you for some time. We have this relationship with our Abba who is in heaven. Now notice right away, we have to be very careful because we get this familiarity, this closeness, and then Jesus throws in these words in heaven. And what that speaks of is the issue of authority. See, yes, we're in community with one another, and yes, we are in a family relationship, but let us never forget that there's an authority. Some years ago, I was working with my dad, and uh, we were catering at an event, and, and I remember we were at an event that my dad had catered for years, and so the customer knew my dad real well, and for many of you, you know that my dad has a Middle Eastern background, came from the country of Iraq at, the year, at 16 years of age, and and so the customer was giving him some uh, a friendly ribbing, if you will. And he kept calling my dad something I'd never heard anybody call my dad before, a good old camel jockey. And I thought that that was pretty good. And my dad laughed, and the customer laughed, and they were all having a great time. Oh, Bill, you're a good old camel jockey. You're a good old camel jockey. And I'm thinking, this is great, you know. And I'm sitting there, and I'm laughing, having a great time. And so we get in the van, and we're heading home. And my dad says, well, when you get home, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I said, well, Dad, you know what? You're just a good old camel jockey. To which my father did not laugh. He didn't even crack a smile. He looked over to me and he said, Tim, you're not my friend. You're not my peer. You're not even my customer. You're my son. You can't talk to me that way. You see, what I had come to see is that... that while others maybe could get away with that, I couldn't. Why? Because I was in a relationship where my father holds all the authority. You see, some of us have this thought that, and we sing it in our hymns, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. And, and, and that is good, but let us balance what we call that friendliness, which is what is the theological term, eminence of, of God, the closeness of God with his transcendence. And we've got to hold those two things in tension. And I want to give you an illustration to that, and then we'll close this very long first point. The Apostle John was the youngest of the disciples. Some believe he was a young teenage boy when Jesus called him. And some believe that was one of the reasons why Jesus had come to love John in such a way. He was a cute young guy who just, he was warm and fuzzy. He was mom's, the kind of kid, the kind of boy that you just love who cuddled up with you. Everywhere you went, John was there. He loved to lean up against people. And he was the one who Jesus loved. And if you remember, on the night that Jesus is betrayed at the Last Supper, where do we find the Apostle John? Right next to Jesus. Reclined at the breast of Jesus. And they're up close and personal. And, and no doubt John is saying, man, Jesus, I love you, man. This is great. We're having food together. And, and I know you're talking some crazy stuff about you going to, to the cross and all that, but... I'm not going to worry about that. I just love hanging out with you, Jesus. This is wonderful. This is great. I want you to notice that in that moment, just as we can, we can be up close and personal with God. God likes that. God desires that. But I want to remind you that same Jesus and that same John meet up in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And that same Jesus and that same John, when they meet together, if you remember what the text says, when John sees Jesus then, he doesn't recline at the breast of Jesus. He falls down 
on his face as if dead. You see, yes, we have a father who loves us, who forgives us, who cares for us, who we can have possession of and he has possession of us. But let us never forget what the writer of Hebrews says when he tells us that our God is an all-consuming fire. And so we've got to hold that intention and be reminded that when we approach God, we cannot be flippant. We cannot be trite in our, our, our response to him. But just as close as we can get to him, we stand in awe of him on the other side because he is a God who is in utter authority. He is a God who sits in the seat of all authority, power, dominion, and greatness. He is the one who holds the small little ball called earth in his hands. So when we approach him, we must do so in a balanced and understanding way. Now notice, once we understand the person, we have to affirm then his preeminence. You see, once we understand who we're talking to, then the question we have to ask is, is he worth praying to? What I mean by that is he truly capable to take care of what concerns us today. Can we dedicate ourselves to a life that is characterized by prayer, knowing the one we pray to is able to accomplish those things? Now, for many, if I was to ask the question and was able to get into your hearts this morning, I would ask the question, are you a person who prays often? And for some right away, you would say, well, well, no, I don't pray as much as I should because I'm a busy person. I get it. I understand what it means to raise a family and run a business and, and uh, be a pastor. I get all of that. I understand that we find ourselves at times coming and going, and, and I get that. Others of you will say, man, when I pray, it seems every time I bow my head, distractions, all the thoughts of the world come into my mind. Or, or maybe some of you might say, well, it's just a lack of spiritual gifts. And when God was handing out spiritual gifts, he did not give prayerfulness to me. Well, you and I can come up with every reason and disclaimer as to why we don't pray, but let me tell you what I've come to learn in my study around this prayer. The only answer there is for our prayerlessness is solely found in our willingness to see God as the preeminent one. What that means is, is we do not see God for who he truly is, because if we did, we'd be praying all the time. We'd be doing what the Apostle Paul said, that we would be praying without ceasing. And so right away, notice in the text, he says, okay, now we know who our God is, this God, Father in heaven. Now he moves and he says, hallowed be your name. Well, just like the puppet said, what in the world does that mean? That's not a word we use very often. And as they told us, it means to set apart as something as holy, to consider something else as holy, to treat as holy to revere something above all else. But notice, what are we to hollow? The answer is the name of God. Why the name? Why is it that Jesus, when he says, I want you to lift high something, it is the name of God. I want to remind you that in Middle Eastern days, your name was all that you were. And so that is why we hear all the time uh, the, the use of the name of God as El Shaddai and Adonai and, and uh, we see him as Jehovah Jireh and uh, Jehovah Sidkanu and all of these different things that speak about my Lord as my peace, my Lord as my provider, my Lord as my righteousness, 
this Lord God who is the king. We see it over and over again and far too much in our culture. We think names have nothing to them. But what Jesus reminds us of is the name of God is all that he is, that God literally revolves around his name. That's why the psalmist says there are some who hope in horses, some who hope in chariots, but that the people of God trust in the name of the Lord our God. When Jesus was here on earth, in John chapter 17, he speaks to his father and he says, they don't know you like I know you, but they've come to know me, Father, and they've come to know that my job was to make your name known to them and I have made your name known. You see, Jesus' job was to introduce the disciples and the people to God. How does he do that? By making known his name. Now notice this word hollow is found in what we would call the aorist tense in the Greek language. What that means is that this name is not just hollowed at one singular time, but it was hallowed at some point in the past and continues to be hallowed all throughout eternity. And so what I want you to know about this is something of great truth. What God is doing now is what he did at the beginning of time. And that is set himself apart from his creation. So let me explain. Whatever God created first, okay? We know it wasn't earth because the angels were there before earth. And so whatever God created first, he hollowed himself. He separated himself from that creation. So then when he creates earth and, and the universe, he hollows himself. He says, yeah, that's great. That's good that I've created that, but I'm better. When he creates humanity, man and woman, he says, it's very good. But he says, I'm better. When he creates and allows us to be creators, co-creators with him, he says, that's good, but I'm better. You see, every day we wake up and we think we are better than we were the day before because of technology and innovation. We are reminded, hey, we seemingly are getting better, but God reminds us each and every day that he lets that wonderful yellow ball into our sky. He reminds us, I'm a whole lot better. You think your technology, that great little smartphone that our friend had in the puppet ministry, it's pretty amazing. God reminds us, I'm better. I'm greater. I'm more awesome. One of my favorite songs growing up was a song by Larnell Harris who uttered these words, There is no equal to you, O God. Above all others, supremely you reign. The whole of heaven and earth stand in awe. There is no equal to you, O God. Later in the song, he says, You are without rival. There is no contender who is like you, O God. So when we go to prayer, that is what we are hallowing, the name of God, and we stand in agreement with his majesty and power. So how do we do that? Let's move a little quicker now into the outline. First of all, we must determine if God is going to be number one. So here is where God separates the life of the believer from the unbeliever. For anyone can desire bread, and even pagans can desire forgiveness. But only you and I as believers can hallow the name of God. So let me ask you this morning, are you? Is God a part, the very essence of who you are in your life? Is he number one? Is he above every other earthly relationship? Is God what fires you up? Is God what brings you the most joy 
and passion. You see, again, the reason our lives are so conflicted is that God is not the priority he needs to be. And so just like Joshua, you and I must choose today whom we're going to serve. Will it be all the different things that distract us in this world, or will it be God? Young people, when they're in a relationship, come to a point where they do what is called a DTR. For some of us who are older, we have no idea what that means. We think what that means when we enter into an emergency room, that means they don't do anything to you. That's No, that's a DNR. Okay, A DTR is a little bit different. This is where a couple says or asks the question, are we going to be exclusive with one another? We are going to define the relationship. And prayer has to be done after the person of God has defined his relationship or her relationship with God. You see, we go to God as if we can just go anytime we want, in any way we want, but God says, am I number one? Am I the God who you see as being the priority in your life, or am I just simply a Sunday morning date? Am I simply just something that you put on your calendar to do every once in a while. You see, hallowing the name of God means that you and I must determine in our hearts that he is number one. Well, how do we do that? Martin Luther, in his great catechism, put the answer to this when asked, how does one hallow the name of God? Luther says, when our life and our doctrine and speech are fully Christian. And so when we define that God is number one, we determine that. Notice we are to declare that God is number one. You see, when God is number one, we will see to it that we speak in such a way that announces that to others. That's why we're careful not to take the Lord's name in vain. That's why we do not swear falsely using his name, but we always speak of God with reverence and respect. This declaration is seen in how we worship. That we see our worship not just singing love songs to another human being, but they are words of affirmation and acknowledgement that Jesus and our Father in heaven is greater and wiser and more wonderful than words can ever describe. He is the grandest and most glorious notion and idea that has ever come apart of the human heart or mind. So we must be a people who declare both in song and in speech, how great, truly great our God is. Notice next we need to demonstrate that God is number one. And what that means is our lives are going to look differently. We cannot say, hallowed be your name, God, and then live how we want to live. To hallow the name of God means that every aspect of our life comes under the submission and lordship of Jesus Christ. To live as Christ did. To say, it is not about my will, God, but your will be done. Ray Pritchard, a a pastor friend of mine, uh, spoke of this and how we don't hallow the name of God in his book, uh, And Pray Like This. He says the following, We do not hallow the name of God here in America when more than a million babies are killed through abortion each year. When drugs are sold like candy on street corners, when sexuality of all kinds is celebrated as a natural, normal way of life, even though it goes against the biblical standard. When the divorce rate nearly equals the marriage rate. When we laugh and giggle at debauchery on TV instead of blushing. When we think nothing of attending filthy movies. When we take God's name in vain and laugh at dirty jokes. When we cheat on our taxes and then joke about it. 
When we see spiritual leaders fall into sin and our hearts are not broken. When we keep quiet at the workplace in order to avoid persecution. God's name is not uh, hallowed when we secretly envy sinners for doing things that we are forbidden to do. We do not hollow the name of God when we tithe to a mortgage company instead of tithing to the Lord. When Christian teenagers are encouraged to go to just a good college instead of a college that will grow them in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We do not hollow the name of God, he says, when we value the approval of others more than the approval of God. When we gossip about the sins of others instead of mourning over our own sins. When we criticize our brothers and sisters for failing to live up to our own expectations. We do not hollow the name of God when we hold grudges for days, weeks, months, and even years. God's name is not hollowed when the Bible becomes a closed book and prayer becomes a heavy burden. Do you hollow the name of God? You see, the Lord's Prayer is a high standard. Helmut Thielich said, you have not learned to pray the Lord's Prayer until you've prayed it against yourself. You see, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer and not get out of the way. You can't say, hallowed be your name, and not get squished under the hallowedness of who you are praying to. You see, we say, hallowed be your name, but not in my business, not in my finances, not in my leisure, my friendships, my thought life, my speech, my dreams, my plans, my schedule, my priorities. We say, God, you can be a part of it all, but don't touch any of it. As a result of that, you and I must decide. And that decision will lead to the final point in my message and the shortest of all my points. And that is that we are called to then accept the program of God. Notice in the text, it says that we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus finishes this prayer by saying these words. He says, okay, once you acknowledge the person of God and you affirm his preeminence, you're now going to accept the plans. It's a given. And yet, sadly, too many of us struggle with the things of God because we don't see him as the sovereign God of the universe. When we pray, we pray as if we're talking to another person who is finite, who is limited in their resources. And so we throw it up to God and say, well, I'm not sure if you can handle this or not, but I'll throw it your way and whatever happens, happens. But we pray to a God who oversees with perfect precision the things of the universe. Our Father who is in heaven, because his name is hallowed, because he loves us. It only seems right that you and I would go to him and give him all that we have. But why would we do that? Because God is a God who is ushering in his kingdom. When we pray, notice, your kingdom come, literally in the original text, it says, come, kingdom of God. It is a reminder to the people of God that God is coming back. It's a reminder that God is going to place all things under his feet. And as a result of that, we can acknowledge and affirm with God that his days are not done, that his plans have not been fulfilled, that there is still a part of this historic sentence that God is writing that when he is good and ready, he'll put an exclamation point on this thing called human history. And so what that means is we need to understand that, and we need to understand that God is calling us to live in that kingdom. So what does that mean? Notice there are four aspects of God's will and kingdom we must be reminded of. First of all, we need to see it personally. 
God's kingdom means you'll do three things personally. Write these down. First of all, it means you'll be fully satisfied in God. Just write that somewhere on the side of your outline. You'll be fully satisfied with Him. How do you give God the most glory? John Piper says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so we need to recognize that if we are going to be followers of God, if we are going to pray this prayer, we must find our whole satisfaction in Him and Him alone. We are to be reminded, secondly, that we are to be fully sanctified. And so when we pray this prayer, we are reminding ourselves that though we are here, maybe at a beginning part in our life, that God wants to bring us to the end, that He who began that good work in us is faithful to see it to the day of completion. And God wants us a part of that. Not begrudgingly being moved in sanctification, but pursuing it with all our heart and all our strength and all our might. And a constant reminder that a part of God's plan is the following. You and I are always secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we hear of news reports of Ukraine and and we see things like disasters like an airplane crash and we sit there and go, God, what about me? God says, you are secure. Yes, your life may come to an end, but absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. Praise God for that. And so we know God has a plan for us, whether we are living or whether we are dead. God has a plan and he says, I will see fit that my kingdom work and my will will be done in your life. And I promise you that. Number two, notice that there's a plan and a will corporately that God has. God has a will for the kingdom of God through his church. And that is that you and I, as a corporate body of believers, will exalt the name of Jesus. So we come together and we don't just simply talk about what's going on in the world, but that our attention is always taken off of us And on to him. That like John the Baptist, we decrease when we gather together so God may increase. So we exalt that name of Jesus in song and in prayer and through the proclamation of his word. We do so so that we can encourage the timid. There are some who are watching the news and seeing the circumstances around them and they walk in and they have what we call the loser's limp but I'm the only Christian in my, in my workplace. I'm the only Christian in my school. And, and, and people think I'm, I'm way out there and, and I can't see Jesus doing a great work in this place. And we remind them that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So take heart. We exhort the wayward. People that find themselves living in two worlds and bouncing back and forth, living on that fence. The job of the church is to exhort them, even at times to discipline them to bring them back to the fold as Jesus does, but to do so lovingly and with care and concern as our priority. We are to equip the saints through the proclamation, young and old. We are to teach the people, and this is the job of the pastor, to equip the people of God for works of service. And so we're to do that, and then we're to evangelize the lost. We're to do all of this. This plan that God has for the church, remember what Jesus says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And so we're able to do this knowing that we are victorious, the devil's already lost, and that Jesus Christ is going to see his kingdom and his will for the church lived out. Now you move then to globally. The gospel, you say, if the church is doing its job, 
then globally we will see the gospel go out to the four corners of the world. And we will see from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, God forming a people of many different lands into one people of his own choosing. And he will do so so that when we stand in heaven, in glory together, we will see the glory of the tapestry of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we will see people of all places and all lands bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. Finally, you say, well, what's beyond globally? God has a plan celestially. And that is, listen, at the culmination of all these things, you and I will stand at the edge between human history and all of eternity. And listen, all of creation in that one singular moment, both in the seen and unseen worlds, will advance towards the throne of God and will celebrate with one voice the glory of God in one eternal crescendo. You and I will bow the knee, and you know who will be sitting next to us? The worst of all demons. The devil will be on our left, the demons will be on our right, and they will be doing one thing. They will be bowing the knee to Jesus, and they will say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know what will happen then? God in his goodness will say to those, Depart from me. I never knew you. But for us, the people of God's own choosing, we will forever and evermore praise the name of our God in heaven. So if that is what we're going to do in eternity, God says, Christ says, it is how we are to pray today. So I ask you, do you believe it? Do you buy into it? If so, then confess our self-righteousness and our pride and our idolatry and take upon ourselves this prayer, this, if you will, standing, that we have a God who loves us, but he's our authority, and his name is to be hallowed and made great in our lives, whether we're in the company of believers or unbelievers, and that we are to see that his kingdom is done, that his will is done, not only on earth, he's got that accomplished, I'm sorry, in heaven, but on earth as well, where God has given us a real opportunity to do that. So let us turn to this prayer as a model of how we are to live our lives and how we are to approach our God with confidence. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we praise you. We praise your name for all that you have taught us about yourself. You are a good God. You are a loving and merciful God. You are a God who holds this world, this universe in your hands. And Lord, I pray that that would become a real part of our lives, that we would see it as the very essence of why we live. And that's why we turn and say to you, Lord, give us our daily bread. Lord, forgive us our sins. Lord, uh, lead us not into temptation. Why? Because you're the only one, Lord, who can do that. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today that maybe needs to realign their relationship. Maybe, Lord, has allowed that relationship to, to grow cold and, and not so intimate. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would bow their knee afresh and say, Lord, it is all about you. Today is the day that I choose to follow you. I choose to long for you. I choose to pursue you. 
And Lord, I will do so because you have given me that opportunity, because you are my Abba, you are my Father who is in heaven. Oh Lord, I pray that everything that we've said and everything that we've done today and everything that we will do in this week to come will lift high and hallow your name so that the people around us may see something different about us and how we approach the God of the universe, how we relate to him. Lord, I pray that as a result of that, people will ask questions, that we will be that salt and light in a dark and unsalty world, that they may come and say, tell me more. Teach me about this God and how you relate to him. I need him in my life. I want him in my life. And Lord, that we would be equal to that task of evangelism in the days to come. To you, God, be all the glory, honor, and praise. And we give it to you in Christ's name. Amen.